we've come to the time of um, intercessory prayer. And there are a couple of things I want to note before we go to our God in prayer. Um, some of you, if you're members of our congregation, receive our email updates, will know that this past week had a lot of ups and downs in it. And I want to note some of those to you. Because they're not only about this past week, but they also represent what many of us have been through in the last year. There have been great joys and also great sorrows. One of the great joys, also mixed with some sorrow, I guess, as many of you knew or know, yesterday evening, Duke Suen and now his wife Karen Suen were married. They've been members of our congregation. He's been a member of our congregation for many years. And you may know his wife Sue passed away. Oh boy, it's been at least seven years, maybe longer than that now. And I remember talking to him. He wouldn't mind me saying this to you. I remember asking him not that long ago, maybe a year and a half ago, what the Lord had for him, and he said, I'm pretty sure the Lord is calling me to be single. And then last night he was married. Oh my word, what beauty. But also sorrow, both for him, remembering his wife who's no longer here, as well as for Karen. Her husband died of cancer a number of years ago as well. So it was a time of joy and sorrow for that family, and we want to hold them before the Lord in prayer. If you've been following the emails about the Powes and the Scutton family, you'll know that Jackie was in the hospital along with her mom, Liz, with pneumonia. Jackie was released and headed to Orlando for a time there with their family. Uh, Breck and their four boys were headed down there by car, and they were involved in a car accident this week. And thankfully, the four boys were spared along with Breck. But it did not look good if you've seen pictures of their van. And then, just a couple of days later, Liz passed away from the effects of her pneumonia. So you can imagine the sorrow, the joy, the sorrow, the ups and downs of that family. It's almost hard to believe how much the Lord has given the Scutton and Powell family just in the last number of weeks. So we want to hold them before the Lord in prayer. And then finally, these ups and downs are also seen in people you might not know very well, but I'm going to introduce them to you. If you came here this morning, you noticed there are people in what we call the manse, even though it's never served as a manse as far as I know, but we own this house right next to the church. There are people who have been living there, and you might wonder, well, who in the world is living in the manse? Well, not permanently, but part-time. About 10 days ago, I got a call from my sister, who is church administrator in Sanborn, Iowa, saying a member of their church was here on business, and he was headed to Blodgett by ambulance because something was wrong in his chest. His name is Ed, and I spent the evening with him in ER really the whole night, and we swapped funny stories in the middle of the night, as you might imagine. By morning, I thought he, they were going to give him some antibiotics and release him from the hospital. They admitted him, and over the next number of days, found one piece of bad news after the other, a valve was only working 15%. They discovered he needed a quadruple bypass. Um, it was very, very difficult news. His family came to see him. He had surgery this past week and is in the process of recovery, but it will be a number of weeks um, that his recovery will take. Uh, his family is here. I'm not going to make them stand up, but if you just put your hand up, people will be able to greet you after the service. We're really, really glad you're here. And even though you might not know how you support and minister to the lives of other people, you do. In a thousand hidden ways. 
And part of the incredible joy I have as a pastor of watching all those hidden ways that you might not know, not know anything about, but your participation in the life of this church, your support of its ministry goes to help sometimes things that become visible and then many times things that you'll never see. But it's our partnership together, as Paul would say, in the gospel. So I'm going to rejoice in those things. Let's go before our God in prayer. Father, in this last Sunday of 2023, for those of us who are a bit older, it's hard to believe that the year has already passed. It seems like it was just here. But then when we mark the events of this year and we remember the joys and the sorrows, it's easy for us to see that a lot has happened. Maybe it's the birth of many children in our congregation and such joy that we've had. Maybe it is marriages that have been, um, that have been performed Maybe it is new friendships that have been made or people have come to our church and become members. Maybe it's relationships that didn't exist and do now. Maybe it's new jobs that you've given us. Maybe it's a restoration of a friendship that we thought was over. Maybe it was a surgery that was performed on our bodies and we're recovering and we give you praise for it. There are many, many reasons to be thankful. And above them all, you've given us the freedom to be here in worship, to celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ. It's amazing to us, Lord, that in all the places and times that human beings have lived, that you've placed us in this time when we have freedom in our country to worship you openly. We have the kind of resources to support our bodies and our minds that enable us, even if we can't be here this morning to stream this over the internet, we live in an amazing time and this is your grace, Lord. And we want to mark that. Because if there's anything in the Old Testament you condemn your people for, it is for a lack of gratitude, of grumbling about what they would want and they don't have. And Lord, make us a people of extreme gratitude, thinking as the Apostle Paul does in his letters, his epistles, first of all about his reasons for thanksgiving. Even if there are difficult things he had to say, he will begin by saying, I thank the Lord always upon every remembrance of you for the grace of Christ that was given to you. And we do the same thing with each other. Many of us have a long way to go yet. I have a long way to go, Lord, you know that. But you and your kindness have placed us within this body where we have this transcendent truth and an imminence, in an imminent fellowship where we can encourage each other in the gospel truth that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. We can challenge each other in those places where we were weak. We can support each other when it seems as though there's nothing else that we can do, Lord, this is an incredible gift. And we thank you for it this morning. And we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we give thanks along with Duke and Karen and their families this morning that you've brought Duke and Karen together. Lord, that didn't seem like something that would happen only a short time ago, and yet you brought them together. And we rejoice with them. But Lord, our hearts are still heavy. Many of us knew, Sue. And we pray for your comfort, especially for the children and grandchildren who are happy and yet still have that sting in their hearts of a mom or a grandmother who is not here. Father, we pray that you would bring those families together both in their joy and their sorrow, 
and their deep and abiding faith in Jesus Christ would help them to see that in this world there will be sorrows and joys. But there's coming a reality that is beyond even our wildest expectation in which all things are made right. And at the end of this year, we pray for the end of time where Jesus will descend from heaven and we will hear the angels shout with joy and we will join our voices with him and we will be with our Savior forever. Lord, make that day soon. Make it this year. We also cry out to you, Lord, for the pain that many are experiencing, for the Scottons and the Pows as they grieve the loss of Liz. We prayed for her, Lord, but your answer to those prayers was not that she would live, but rather she would go to be with you. And we are glad this morning that like many others that we have known, they have gone to be in the presence of our God. They're not simply out of existence, but rather they've gone to have a spiritual presence before the throne of Jesus. And they are, according to Hebrews, worshiping you with a greater worship than we're even experiencing. We're a bit jealous of that, Lord. We look forward to that perfect worship. But while we're here and they are absent from us, our hearts are heavy. And we pray that you would give comfort to that family. We rejoice that you spared Breck and their four sons from anything more serious this past week. And we ask, Lord, that you would give them recovery where still necessary. We're grateful also that you gave Jackie recovery from her pneumonia. But Lord, there's so many ups and downs in that family's life, even over the past number of weeks. We pray that you would give them peace and the ability to reflect on that, even if they don't understand it all in the moment. And we also pray this morning for the Krakus family. Father, again, one of these incredible illustrations of not knowing what's going on, not only in our world, but even in our bodies. And then having to work through very difficult things and requiring patience and endurance and confidence, trust in you. And praying, Lord, seeking your help and watching you work. Lord, there's no one like you. There really isn't. We say that, but we believe it to be true. There's no one else we can ask who has the power to do as you do. There's no one else we can cry out to who knows what is right and true at every moment and does it perfectly. There's no one who is faithful and steadfast and fundamentally good like you are. There's no God like you. And so this morning we recognize that as a people of God as illustrated in the lives of these families. And there are a thousand other illustrations of that that we could recall this morning. But above all, what we are here to do is to thank you that you care for your people, to celebrate that truth, to recognize it, to worship you for it, to ask that as we now come to your word and we read a portion from Revelation that gives us this broad view of human life, that these things that are happening to us would not fade into the background as though they are unimportant or unspiritual in some way, but instead we would see our lives, our existence, the day-to-day struggles of our hearts, we would see them in light of your word. 
that as the Bible describes, we would be transformed as your disciples. We would move from one degree of glory to the other. We would leave here with a deep confidence that our Savior is good and faithful to us at all times. And so we ask you these things and we pray them in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This morning our sermon is from the book of Revelation, chapter 4. A number of people have noted to me that I sometimes talk fast. I just glanced at the very large clock that's in the back of this room. I noticed we've had a number of things this morning, and I'm just going to ask you to be a little bit patient in what is about to happen. Um, I believe what's found in Revelation chapter 4, the first 11 verses are so important that I don't want to rush through them. I want you to understand them. From Revelation chapter 4, I said the first 11 verses, they are the verses of this chapter. So please, brothers and sisters, hear the word of God. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, a carlinian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. These are the words of God. There are times that some questions seem slightly inappropriate. For example, if I walk up to a woman of a certain age and say after the service, when are you due? You might consider that an inappropriate question. However, let's imagine that you and your husband have your names printed on that list that's in the bulletin, and then I walk up to you and I say, oh, can you remind me, when are you due? 
The question's no longer sort of inappropriate, isn't it? It makes a lot of sense. We expect it ought to be asked. The same thing is true when we come to the end of something, when we come to the end of a year like 2023. Questions that ordinarily might not seem to fit all of a sudden make a lot more sense. They seem appropriate. And the appropriate question in my mind to ask at the end of a year like 2023 are questions like this. What has this all been about? Add up all the things that have happened in your life in the last 364 days, and what has it all been about? What is the point of this? Is it just a series of events that are happening to us, and as we roll through life, we simply have to go up and down with everything that happens and hopefully smile broadly when people say, how are you? The answer you know is, fine. That's right. I'm fine. Is that what you're supposed to say? Or are there times for us to step back and to ask the question, what really is this about? I need to know. One of the things I'm very fond about saying is that the biblical religion, the Christian faith, is above all things realistic. It is meant for us to ask the most difficult, the most probing questions, and for us to receive answers that are not only true in the sense the Bible says they're true, and they are absolutely true for that sense, but they are true because they are true in reality. Well, the, what we worship God and why we worship Him is not simply true because we want it to be true. The answers that are given in the Bible are not there because we want them simply to be true. I would tell you this morning they're true because they are true in reality. And that is also the case with a big picture question What is this all about? What's the point? To answer that question, I've turned with you in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 because it's the big picture book. And as I said previously, I want to say again, when you read through a chapter like Revelation 4, I long again to be about 10 or 11 years old because my imagination then could sort of fill out this picture in Revelation 4 that I struggle to do when I'm 51 years old But the Lord gives us this picture to the old as well as to the young because he wants us to know the answer to the question, what is this all about? So let me answer that for you by describing God in three ways. And at first it might be hard to understand the answer to this question, what is it all about? But I hope to show you as we see how God is described here in Revelation chapter 4. The first thing that Revelation 4 says in the first seven verses or so, is that God is, and here's a very Christian word, God is glorious. Everything in this story revolves around the throne. It is the throne of ruling, of judging, of determining what will happen. And the one who sits on the throne at the center of this story is one who is explained or described in two ways. First, He is described in his appearance. What does he look like? It says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jaster on Carlinian stone, and around the throne was a rainbow that he had the appearance of an emerald. You've never seen a sunrise or sunset or laid your eyes on the Rocky Mountains from a distance or peered over the edge of the Grand Canyon and seen anything close to this. This is truly incredible. 
You might picture in your mind what this looks like. I'll disappoint you this morning and say it's inadequate (laughs) as compared to what truly is. And I think that's intentional by the Spirit of Christ because this is a description of the glory of the God of heaven and earth. And it is perfectly appropriate that we struggle to wrap our small minds, I'll say my small mind, around that reality. And this description of God seated on his throne in the center of this scene in heaven is meant to recall to our minds the Old Testament account of Ezekiel in chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. And there we read again of one seated on a throne with an appearance, and I quote, like sapphire. And again I quote, he looked like he had the appearance of a bow that is a rainbow that is in the cloud in the day of the rain, so the appearance of brightness was all around him. If you knew the Old Testament and then you read Revelation chapter 4, you would say the writer of Revelation is connecting us to the book of Ezekiel. The question is why? Why is he doing this in describing to us the glory of God? It has to deepen and broaden our appreciation That this is not just a snapshot. This is the reality of the glory of God. And it's meant to impress upon us how truly glorious God is. Think of how Moses, when he came down from the mountain, glowed. Or how God covered Moses in the cleft of the rock to spare him so he would not die because of the glory of God. There is a glory about God. Now you say, Pastor, what is this glory? It is the eminence of the greatness of God. It just is there. The closest I can describe it is this. When I was in high school, I saw in person the President of the United States. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in the arena, he came riding in on an old old western sort of buggy pulled by two horses, and he stood no less than five feet from me. And I was impressed. (laughs) Maybe you walk past Michael Jordan in the airport in Chicago, or for some of you, LeBron James, and you're like, oh my word. That is a very small approximation of the eminence of the glory of God. The second way in which the one who's at the center of this scene is described is by telling us how those around the throne are responding to this God who is so glorious. There are 24 other thrones, each with somebody on that throne. They are called the elders, most likely referring to the leaders of the Old and New Testament churches. And there are seven torches of light, which are the seven spirits of God, according to the text. They represent the perfect and pervasive presence of the Holy Spirit. And then there is that sea of glass about which we sing hymns. And that sea of glass I take to be like a reflecting pool. That when you're watching the sunset over a perfectly still lake, you're not only seeing the sun and its light, you're watching the sun and its light reflected in the light of the water and it's duplicated, it's doubled. And the leaders, the spirits, and these four creatures we read about in just a moment 
all of them are revolving around the throne. They're focused on the one on the throne, circling around the throne, watching, enjoying, praising, moved by the one on the throne. It is his presence that matters. It is his glory that is front and center, that is seen and reflected. Each one of these four creatures looks a little different. Each has something about the greatness of creation about these four living creatures. The lion is the greatest and most fierce. I would ask the children, he is the king of the jungle. We not only say that, but his power was recognized at this point in history as well. The ox was the greatest of all working animals, the strongest of domesticated workers. The eagle is the most majestic of the birds, the fighter, the noble bird. We say he is the mascot of the United States of America because there's nothing more soaring or glorious than the eagle. And the man is the ruler over all things, the king of creation. Why these four living creatures in order to impress upon us this reality that the glory of the one at the center of the scene receives glory, praise, worship from the greatest representatives of his creation. Or if I can just put it this way, there's nothing in all creation that is great as the one who's sitting on the throne. And most impressive to me and hardest for me to imagine is that they're covered with eyes. All around them it says they have eyes. And then it says not only eyes on the outside, but eyes on the inside. How can they have eyes on the inside? I don't understand. But the point is a simple one. They need so many eyes because just one or two would not be enough to fully appreciate the glory of God. It's the writer's way of saying, so great is his glory. You need to try to take it in as though your whole body was covered with the instrument of trying to see. And even then you couldn't fully appreciate it. The creatures and those around the throne are all looking at God himself. Have I made the point adequately? At the center of the scene is God in all of its glory Everything else in the scene is revolving around God, highlighting the glory of God. Okay, what's the point? The point that God is making and describing to us the glory of God comes directly from Ezekiel. In the prophet Ezekiel's time, the people of God were in deep, deep trouble. I don't think I need to say too much more about what that was, except for this. The Babylonians had come and taken the king captive. Thousands of the Israelites were taken captive along with him. The nation had no ruler. The people were scared, and the future was far less than certain. And the question was, it's the great question that hangs over all times. It's the appropriate question for them and for us at this moment. Where is God? What's the point of all this? Why is this happening? And in the middle of this mess, God sends Ezekiel to the people of Israel with the word of God. And in that word, the news that God is on his throne. God is on his throne. That's what Ezekiel says, and that's what John is telling us here. In the middle of all that we might experience, God is on his throne with all of his glory, 
The greatest description we might have in the scriptures of the glory of God and all the creatures around the throne giving praise to God. God is at the center not only of the scene in heaven, but Ezekiel is saying God is at the center of all that is happening in the universe. No matter what else is going on, God is on his throne. Let me explain to you why this is so important in the book of Revelation. Lest you think, well, Ezekiel, okay, but why here? people who originally received these letters, or this letter to the various churches in Revelation, saw a world that looked very much unlike the glorious God that is described here. They lived with an emperor who claimed to be God but was morally corrupt, a culture that worshipped what they had and therefore wanted to accumulate more and more and more and more. See if that connects and resonates some. It was a culture that could care less about God and therefore cared very little about people. And these believers, like those in Ezra's time, or Ezekiel's time, rightly could ask the question, and what's the point of all this? Why is this happening? Is there nothing that makes all of this make sense? And into those realities in Ezekiel's time and in John's time, and now I'm going to extend it, you know where I'm going, right? Into our time comes this news, God is on his throne. God's on his throne. Here he is. Look at God in the most amazing description that is given anywhere in the scripture. The glory of God is captured and the greatest representatives of creation are giving God that glory. Here's what I want you to see from this. You might be lulled into sensing that the flatness of your experience might lead you to believe that God is not there. That none of this really has an explanation. None of it makes sense. There's no unifying purpose to life. And then we have these words in the Scriptures. And the glory we catch in glimpses here and there are meant to tell us this impressive, incredible truth. God is on His throne. And it's at the center of not only what is happening in heaven... It is at the center of everything that is happening on this earth. Mm. And then there's a second way that God is described in this passage. It's found in verse 8. It's a song. It's the first song that we find here. If it reminds you a bit of the fact that we went through the songs that lead up and reflect in the birth of Jesus, I would simply tell you, and this is very encouraging, I'm sure, for some of us that songs often capture not only truth, but the deepest emotions of our heart. They're mirrors of what's going on inside. And this song is meant to capture in a way that might be hard to just articulate with words if we say them, the response of these creatures to the glory of God. It says in these creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes so they can observe the glory of God. They have eyes all around and within, and night and day they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Again, the writer here is simply plucking out words from the Old Testament as if to prove to us this is not only true now, it's always been true. Isaiah 6 verse 3, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy might be one of those words if you're growing up in church that you've heard a long time and you might think, I don't know, what does that mean? (laughs) I know you're supposed to use it, (laughs) but what does it really mean? Let me explain to you you what holy would have looked like to the Israelites in Isaiah's day. Perhaps the best illustration is the Old Testament temple and correspondingly the tabernacle before it. They had three levels of holiness. There was the outer courts where originally ceremonially clean Israelites could come later on. There was even a court of the Gentiles beyond that. There was a second level, the holy place, where priests could enter, and then there was the one place, the holy of holies, that once a year only the high priest could enter. And the most holy place was the most holy place, not because it was simply designated that way, but because it was the place where God said he would place his presence. There between the outstretched arms of the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And God is so perfectly morally clean. There is no deception in him. There's no lying in him. There is no faithlessness in him. There's nothing sin-tainted at all in our God that those who are sinful must be very careful when they enter into his presence. And this step system of entering into the presence of the holiness of God was meant to impress upon the Israelites, and it also impresses us this morning, that God is not someone that you come before casually. He is not like, as I have said many times, my grandfather, who always gave us a quarter when we left, no matter what we did, (laughs) including putting his cat in the dryer. God's not like that. He is genuinely holy. And now you ask the question again, Pastor, why does God make this point that God is holy, holy, holy? Especially if you're telling us that this passage is all about answering the question, what is at the center of the world? What makes sense of it all? Why does this matter that God is holy, holy, holy? That this holy one is over all of time because it says here who was and is and is to come. Again, I want to return with you to the prophets from which this song is borrowed. That is the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in a time when the unholiness of the Israelite nation was at an all-time high. Read through the first five chapters of Isaiah, and you will see the recorded sins of God's people. They fake their way through worship, which is first among all of their sins. Their hearts were not engaged God says, you come to worship and you're asking the question, when will this all be over so we can go on with life? I've got things to do. I'm here in your presence, God. Aren't you impressed that I would bother to show up? And God says, I see you. I know what's going on in your heart. You're not fooling me at all. And to add on to the fact they were faking their way through worship, they hurt widows and orphans, the most vulnerable of all people they would run over and take advantage of. To be rather stark, it's the language of the Bible, they're called whores and prostitutes, rebels and murderers in these first five chapters, or to capture it as Isaiah does and now this passage does, 
I'll just give it to you in the reverse. They are unholy, unholy, unholy. That would be a description of the Israelites. And then after categorizing, cataloging, I should say, all of their unholiness, Isaiah is given this vision of the wonderful presence of a holy God. Why? It is to say to them and now the readers of Revelation and to us as well, listen, be patient. The one who sits in the throne is not like what you see all around you. We can assume and often do assume it is the natural inclination of the human heart to look at our reality and say, well, that must reflect who God is. God cannot really be that powerful because seems, it seems as though things just happen. God can't be that morally pure because look at all the injustice in our world. Do you know the most obvious objection to the God of the Scripture is the presence of sin in this world? You know, that's the most common objection. I've heard it repeatedly. Maybe it's the objection that exists in your heart. If God is truly good and He's truly all-powerful, how can such evil exist in this world? If that's what you struggle with as you try to make sense of a reality, I say again to you, listen, be patient. The God who sits in the throne of the universe is not like what you see all around you. In the middle of tremendous immorality, even if it looks like unholiness is winning, good news, it's not a holy God still sits on his throne. He did in Isaiah's day, he did in the day of John, and he does today as well. Just when it seems as though there is no truly good and just, here is God in all of his holiness sitting on the throne, and there is singing around that throne highlighting the holiness of God. That's the second thing this revelation says about our God that he is holy, he is glorious, and he is holy. Now the third thing, he alone is worthy of worship. That's the third thing. There's a second song in this section as well in verses 9 and 11. In verse 11 specifically it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It says earlier, just a verse or two before, they are gathered around the throne worshiping God, saying these words. In their song, they are giving us the best and most basic understanding of worship. They're confessing that God is worthy of something. That's what worship is all about. Compared to everything else that exists in this world that you give your heart, your mind, your strength, your money to, you're hoping that by giving your possessions, really your heart to these things, these things will be able to satisfy in some way. And if that's what we struggle to do, we can't help but confess with the elders that this God is the only one that really deserves to be worshipped. He alone is worthy. Everything else is like dust compared to Him. Everything else looks so small and puny and so unworthy once you see God in His holiness and glory. Again, you ask, Pastor, what's the point? Why tell us this in answer to the question, what is at the center of history? How do I make sense of my world? Let me tell you this morning that this is the point. I want you to extend your eyes, if not literally, at least figuratively, look into heaven and see God as He is. 
see God as the one who is designed to be worshipped. So that this morning as we see ourselves pulled forward and upward into heaven to sit around the throne of the great and glorious God and to sing with the 24 elders, we are being called to say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John is saying, not only is God glorious and holy, he was designed to be worshipped, Here's your invitation to abandon everything that might substitute to worship the one alone who is not only worthy to be worshipped, but can bear the weight of the worship that you would offer to him. Those are the three things that John says about this God who is seated on the throne. And now you can ask that question, as you probably are. How does that answer? How do we make sense of our world? What is at the center I'm going to answer that question by asking another one that I think, actually, if we can discover the answer to the second one, helps us understand the first. The second question is this, where is Jesus in this chapter? To be certain, this passage does not at first seem to identify the one seated on the throne as Jesus. In fact, it seems to be the Father rather than the Son. To understand why then... I'm asking this question, where is Jesus in this passage? You need to, if you have your Bibles open, it's fine if you don't, I'll fill you in. Look ahead to chapter 5, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. There Jesus again in the scene of heaven is pictured as the one who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. He is the Lamb of God who has shed his blood for his people. And Jesus receives the same sort of praise for that sacrifice as the God of heaven and earth receives for being holy and glorious. And the point of chapter 5 is to answer the great question that hangs at the end of chapter 4. If God is really this glorious and holy, uniquely worthy of my worship, how in the world is it possible for somebody like me, who is far less glorious and certainly not holy, someone who does not worship God as he ought, who gives his worship to the things that he hopes is going to bring him temporary joy. If that's who I am and this is who God is, who spans the gap? How is it possible for someone like you to actually worship someone like that? And the answer is, are you surprised? Jesus it's Jesus. He has given himself for you, his life and death in your place. He opens the seals. He breaks the seals. He opens the scrolls. He offers himself in your place so that not only can you be in the presence of this glorious holy one that deserves our worship, God welcomes you into his presence because he sees you in the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you heard that, so let me try once again. God welcomes you into his presence in worship. No matter where you've been, what you've done, we all have a catalog of sins. Those sins aren't the things that this holy, glorious, worthy worship God sees. When he looks at you this morning, what he sees is a son, Jesus Christ, and he says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, come to me. I receive your worship. 
So how does that answer the question, what is at the center of what's going on in this world? How do you make sense of this all? Let me try to stick it all together and package it with a nice bow for you by saying it this way. If God is really this glorious and this great, and Jesus is the one who brings us before this great and glorious God who's worthy of worship, Jesus is our mediator. And this is at the very center of the picture that God gives us in eternity. And my answer to your question, what is at the center of this all, what makes sense of this reality is this. At the very center of what it means to live in this world, to be human, to understand a reality, is that God intends for us to really know our God and to be transformed by Jesus Christ. That is it. When you look at everything that has happened to you, everything you've done, everything that has passed by in 2023, I would challenge you to run it through the grid. Did God intend it so that I would know Him in Jesus Christ and be transformed to be more like Jesus, is that really what makes sense of my realities? Does that explain my suffering? Does it explain my joys? Does it explain the way that God treated me in my sin? Does that really explain it all? I believe that's what John is telling us. And I'm going to give you, now that I've tried your patience a lot this morning, I'm going to give you something to do at some point today, this last day of 2023. I'm going to guess that for many of you at some point, if you've got a party tonight or you're just sitting with your family, even if it's all of you, you're going to pause and consider what's really happened this past year. And if you have the time, and let me encourage you to make the time, could you do this? Would you actually make a list of, say, I'm going to make it brief, 10 things, 10 of the most important things that have happened to you your life in this past year, 2023, what are the top 10 most significant things? They can be difficult things, joyful things, whatever they are. Remember them. Call them to mind. Talk about them with your spouse if you haven't. Call a friend if you need to. You even can grieve them or celebrate them as they are appropriately considered. And at the top of the list, just do this. Right, so we would really know our God in Jesus Christ. That's what the list is about. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for the patience that you've given us this morning. There's a lot that we needed to wrap up before 2023 is over. And that's only the things that have happened during the service. There's so many other things that you've been working in our lives And now we give you the worship that you deserve and pray that as we launch into 2024 that we would go with the confidence that the point of this life is to know you as God and to be transformed by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing in our lives. That's what you're doing in our marriages, in our homes, through our jobs. It's what you're doing in our church, in our communities, in our world. That's what you're doing. And because of that, give us patience, give us hope, give us assurance, give us even joy. 
we ask in Jesus' name, amen.